Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, the 32nd chapter, verses 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed in the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Thanks, Dana. Uh, so growing up, I watched a bit of WWF. Uh, I was in the 80s and 90s. Even at a young age, though, I knew that it was really nothing more than a soap opera for a different demographic. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was hard not to be intrigued, at least at that age and at that time, by certain aspects of it. There was so much drama leading up to certain matches. This... Uh, I knew even then was simply a, a marketing gimmick, really, but it was hard at times not to be drawn in. The matches that were the most intriguing uh, were the ones that had the biggest names or perhaps one of the biggest names against the biggest underdog. Uh, who who couldn't get fired up about Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant? Do you remember when Hulk Hogan raised Andre the Giant above his head? Oh, my goodness, 400 pounds. And then, of course, each match, however it ended up, was only a, a means to greater drama for the next match and the next event. It was, it was to make money. I knew it. But how do you not get sucked in, right? I don't mean to make light of this passage, equating any part of the world of, or word of God to WWF. you got to do that carefully, right? Uh, I don't mean to make light of this passage, and I promise this paragraph right here is the end of all WWF references for the rest of the the sermon, but there are some parallels between it and the main event of WrestleMania. It contains, it really does, a made-for-pay-per-view wrestling match. The match was preceded by a period of build-up, which I'll highlight for you, and it, it, it features a massive underdog who, in a TV producer's dream, seems to hold his own in ways that are not at first obvious. And the dramatic result is that it produces even more drama. That's right, kids. This week's 
text is mainly about a wrestling match, a true heavyweight against a true underdog. Given the context, you might expect that it would be between Jacob and Esau. Instead, shockingly, it was between Jacob and God. So we're going to, the sermon has four parts. We're going to consider the stage being set for the match itself, the match itself, the result, and then through these things, lastly, we'll see two particular applications that this text gives us, namely that our identity is given to us by God alone and our victory is secured for us by God alone. So let's pray that God would help us to understand and appreciate the significance of this strange passage and all that it means for the church today. God, thank you for these people. Thank you that this room is filled with people whose hope is in you or who are here and have the opportunity to hear why their hope ought to be in you. I'm I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful for the people who are able to watch online and the technology is, is such that Even when not physically present, the word of God can come to bear. (laughs) What an awesome gift that is. It it even reminds me of um, even the changing shape of missions around the world and how we're able to bring the gospel to far corners of the world that it could never have gotten to before, (sighs) even through a, a blog or a podcast or a website or what an awesome gift that is. But however it goes out, God, I pray as you have promised that your word would not return void. Help us to lean into this text. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that there is in here and all that that means for us and for all of your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you probably remember, or maybe you remember, that 20 years before this particular passage, Jacob had fled from his brother Esau because Esau wanted to kill him because Jacob stole his blessing from his father. It's kind of a wordy way to say that. But basically, two decades earlier, Jacob, the man in this story, had left his land to to come to be with his father-in-law because his brother wanted to kill him because Jacob was a tricky dude. You probably also remember from last week that Jacob was now heading back towards his homeland and towards his brother who, at last sight, had murderous intentions toward him. So, So here's sort of the lay of the land. Having sent messengers ahead to Esau, Jacob having sent messengers ahead to his brother to announce his coming and sort of figure out where things stood, having heard that in response to the messengers, his brother sent was coming along with 400 of his men, and having sent three waves of gifts ahead in order to gain his favor, last week's sermon and last week's text closed with this line. So the present passed, the waves of presents that Jacob sent to Esau, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night at the camp. So our text for this morning picks up on that same night. Sent the presence ahead, hopefully to pacify his brother, if his brother was still angry, uh, and he stayed there that night. High drama. So what would happen, right? As, as that last scene closed, we left wondering, what would happen? How long would it take Esau and his men to get to Jacob? How far out were they? 
Did Esau still want to kill Jacob? Was that still the case 20 years later? If so, would Jacob's gifts work? Would they pacify his brother at all? Well, interestingly, none of those questions get answered in this passage. The big cliffhanger is still hanging. But as I mentioned in the introduction, this text takes a very different and unexpected turn. Before we get those answers next week, we got a, a different set of questions to ask this week. So the first couple of verses set the stage. Look at verse 22. The same night he arose, that is the same night that he had sent the gifts off to his brother Esau, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. So the idea is he had sent all of his family and stuff to the other side of the river. He was there by himself. For some reason, he determined personally to wait until morning. uh, determined not to wait until morning. It was night when this happened. He determined not to wait until morning to get his clan across the river. And for some reason that the text doesn't tell us, having successfully done so, gotten everyone and everything else in his party across, Jacob didn't go with them. Uh, It seems like he got them across and maybe even came back. Perhaps the current had increased, perhaps it had become too dark, perhaps he was just too tired. We're we're not told why, but the point that we need to understand as the drama builds is that he was alone at night on the other side of the river from his family. Regardless of why he stayed, the main point is that he stayed and he was by himself at night. It's a little strange, right? But not overly so. So far, so good. Uh, Nothing too uh, out of the ordinary at this point. But what came next, no one could have seen coming. At least I couldn't, and I imagine you couldn't. Uh, 24, a man and a man. So you're thinking, okay, it's alone. I, I don't know. Get a good night's sleep. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. What? Right? I mean, I I don't know. I don't know where you saw that going, but it's not quite what I would have thought. Talk about an unexpected turn of events, a situation seemingly coming out of nowhere. Uh, Jacob, presumably with his mind and his family, I, I hope they're okay. I hope everything's going all right. I'm glad it's quiet around here finally. You know, they make a lot of noise, all those camels and kids and stuff. Uh, presumably not able to rest too much, though, because his brother, the last time he met him, wanted to kill him, and he's on his way. So, you know, there's stuff going on in his mind, understandably, Um, but probably not an all-night wrestling match. So the next thing we we know is he finds a man, just says a man, who comes at him. Aside from the strangeness of this, this, I mean, I don't know, I, I wrestled for like, 40 seconds the other day against my son, and I was out of breath, so I can't even imagine what an all-night deal would do. So, But aside from the strangeness of this, all-night wrestling match between strangers, didn't know the guy. I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to be like comedian Dave here, but you're sitting there hanging out, and some dude just comes at you. Let's wrestle all night. I, I just can't really get my head around that. But that's what happened. Aside aside from the strangeness of that, which is to set a lot aside, of course, there's three particular things to note from from these first couple of verses. First, 
the term wrestled itself is, is significant. Included in it is part of the Hebrew word for dust. What's the point? The point is that this was not some metaphorical wrestling match or some dream. It was an actual wrestling match. And we, we know that even further the next day when he walked away limping. We see in verse 31. But the two men engaged in physical combat to the point that they were rolling around in the dirt. The word for wrestling is embedded in that is that term. Second, the fact that the wrestling match was at night until the breaking of the day is a subtle way to indicate the fact that the man, we don't know much about him yet, intended to remain anonymous. Again, this is confirmed in the next verse when the man asked to be released because the day was breaking. And in verse 29, when he refused to give Jacob his name. We'll look closer at this in, the min- in a minute, but it's important to see from the outset this there was a, a, a need for anonymity uh, for some reason. The third thing to note is that the word touched is significant, that he touched Jacob's hip. It's meant to highlight the supernatural nature of Jacob's opponent. It's a gentle word. Ordinarily, to achieve a dislocated hip, you would expect to read a word like he punched Jacob's hip, or kicked it, or jarred it, or smash, smashed it, not touched it. It's not a word that could be misinterpreted to a like a hard touch or a, a violent act. It was a gentle word. And again, the fact is no mere man can simply touch the hip of another and dislocate it like this man did. We're not told exactly what it means yet, but it's already clear that Jacob was not wrestling an ordinary guy. So who was this man? Why did he come after Jacob? How would all of this end? And what did all of this mean? Let's turn to the final section, 26 to 32, to see if it answers any of these questions. So we've we've seen the setup, we've seen the match, and here's the result. 26. Presumably in order to maintain his anonymity further, the man said to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. And presumably, having realized that his opponent was no mere man, Jacob, instead of letting go when his hip was dislocated or at the command of the man, held on even tighter. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not sure that's where my mind would have gone at that point. But Jacob, ever the opportunist, wasn't going to let someone like this go without at least attempting to get something from him. That's the kind of dude he was. At first, the man's response probably seems like he was trying to change the subject or avoid the issue or withhold a blessing, for he simply said, what's, what's your name? He asked, what's your name? It's kind of strange as well. In a strange night, that seems like another strange response. What does that have to do with a wrestling match or a blessing or the break of day? It didn't seem to deter Jacob, though, for he responded with a simple answer. My name's Jacob. Well, quickly, it becomes clear that the man's question was was actually rhetorical and part of the blessing that Jacob demanded. It was part of his blessing that he was about to give. For verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Again, I I, I don't know. It's maybe easy if you've read this before to not... This this whole thing is strange, and, 
And it's good to read the Word of God the way that it is written. And it is written in a strange way. I don't know if you saw Jacob being alone. I don't know if you saw an all-night wrestling match coming. I don't know if you saw a gentle touch on a hip dislocating it. And I don't know if you saw a changed name and that the wrestling match was actually against God. If you did, that's pretty cool, I guess. But that is not at all what I saw. Wow. (laughs) Truly, there's a lot here. The first thing is that enforcing Jacob to, to say his name, to state his name, the man was also forcing Jacob to acknowledge his inferiority to the man and his true nature. Do you remember what Jacob means? The man was knew his name already, of course, because we know now it was God. But in in forcing him to say his name, he was forcing him in another way to submit and admit who he was, who Jacob was. His name meant cheater or heel taker, heel grabber. In other words, in asking this single simple question, the man was revealing who he was even more. He was asserting his superiority and position of power over Jacob. He did this even further, showing his superiority and power over Jacob. And a second thing you you can't miss, the nature of the man's blessing. He did bless him. We'll see that explicitly in just a second. But even this was part of the blessing. What, What was that? What was the blessing? It was at once the blessing of a new name and a new nature. He was... He was the cheater and the heel taker, but now he would be Israel, the God striver and prevailer. That's awesome. I mean, if you're, if you're known as the cheater, the heel grabber, those aren't good things. And now all of a sudden the gift was a new name. You are now a God striver and a God prevailer. It's hard to overstate the significance of this. Well, here's the third thing we have to get here. The man's superiority and power were shown in fullness in his final revelation, that he was God. In renaming and re-identifying Jacob, the man revealed himself as one of highest authority. You can't just walk around and say, Dan, you shall be called Bob from now on. I I can't do that. (laughs) That'd be kind of neat if I could. Bob's a fun name, but I don't have the authority to do that, much less do that because I'm re-identifying Dan in a new way. I don't have that. God... God alone has that in this sense. To be crystal clear, the man plainly revealed himself as God, for you have striven with God and men. That Jacob had this understanding is unmistakable, even as we'll see in a minute where he renamed the land the face of God. Jacob wrestled with God, Grace. It's clear that he already knew that this was no mere man, but as things became even clearer, he sought to settle the matter once and for all, saying, please tell me your name. Unwilling to come under Jacob, as he had forced Jacob to come under him, the man refused to answer. He'd been as clear as he wanted to be. He'd already given Jacob all that he would concerning his true nature, and he blessed him. Here's the fourth last thing to see from this. Given the superiority and power of the man over Jacob, indeed, given the fact that the man was God, we need to come to glimpse with the fact that Jacob prevailed, verse 28, in the wrestling match. How can this be? (laughs) Again, out of all the unexpected things, including this revelation that his all-night wrestling match was against God, maybe the most shocking thing of all was that the text says he prevailed. How could that be? How could he even survive this? much less keep it close, much less prevail. 
Isn't this the same God? Again, the text, uh, the psalm Matt had us read this morning, <laughs> the, the songs we sang about God. Isn't this, isn't this the God who spoke the heavens and earth into being by mere words? Isn't this the same God who causes mountains to tremble and stars to hold their position in the cosmos? The answer is yes. Talk about a, a mismatch. Talk about an underdog. How could a mere man then in Jacob prevail against this? We must understand. You got to get this. I know you know this, but get this. Jacob didn't prevail in the sense that he overpowered or outmaneuvered God. That's not what it means. That's impossible. Instead, he prevailed in the sense that he sought a blessing from God and God granted him his wish. It is the same as when we wrestle with God in prayer that he might save our unbelieving neighbor. And God answers our prayer. We, we prevail in our prayer when God saves them. This was yet another sign that Jacob was God's chosen son. He was the chosen son of the promise and that God would be faithful to all of his promises. Well, content and amazed by all of this, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. There could be no mistake that Jacob's wrestling match was with God and that God had placed his favor upon Jacob. Or Jacob, see what it says? My life has been delivered. It's like Isaiah who says, I'm ruined. He, he sees God, or at least the train of God's robe, and he says, I'm ruined, I'm wrecked. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. How can I survive? And the answer is you can't, but by the grace of God, Jacob here acknowledges this. Here's the thing, Grace. This is a foretaste of the great promise that God gives to all believers in Christ. What do I mean by that? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Here's what this means. Do you know that this means that another name of and blessing in heaven is Peniel? The face of God? This is heaven in a sense. This is a, a glimpse of Heaven, where we will see God face to face and live and find life in joy and blessing. All week, my prayer has been that God might grant us to long for his face in even greater ways in light of this passage. Well, without comment, it seems that the morning fully dawned, God departed. It doesn't even tell us anything about the, the man's departure. It just picks up in verse 31 and says, The sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel. He had been charged, and in so doing, passing out of the city, he had been changed. He'd been changed ontologically in his very beings. He'd been changed spiritually, physically, and dietarily. <laughs> he was now God grasper and prevailer. He was now Israel. That's the ontological change. He was now humbled. That was a spiritual change that took place in him. He now limped because of his hip, the text tells us. That's the physical change. And his diet, along with that of his offspring, was changed. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. What a night that was. <laughs> I've had some doozies in my day. Um, but not like that. So what do you, what do you do with this? What do, what do we do with this? 
How do we respond to this? How do we handle this? This passage elicits, at least for me, all kinds of questions. You ever Have you ever learned the inductive study method of the Bible where the first thing you do is make observations of the text? My observations are like 75 questions. I just, it's question after question after question after question. What do you do with this? Why, why would God wrestle with Jacob? Why would Jacob wrestle with God? Was it even right? Should he have backed down as soon as he knew it was God? Was there any significance to the fact that the struggle was on the edge of the promised land, that he had had an experience with God just before he left the promised land and, and now another one just before he enters back into it. Again, what was the point of all this? Was there anything in this that we're meant to imitate? Should we, should we start some kind of new ministry at Grace called Wrestling with God and, and get the t-shirts and all that too? Just like, don't be a Laban. Grace Church, we wrestle with God. I mean, is that, is that sort of the thing? Was there anything that we should imitate? Are there ways we should wrestle with God? The simple fact is the text doesn't tell us a lot of that. The text doesn't really interpret interpret a lot of this for us, things we might want to know. And yet, while it doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, it tells us everything we need to know. And there's two things in particular I really hope every one of us can grab onto in new ways this morning. The first is that God alone determines our identity. Now that sounds simple enough, but but please hear this, especially those of you who are struggling with discouragement, especially those of you struggling with pride, especially struggling those of you struggling with assurance of salvation. God alone determines your identity. In this passage, we find a man who was first named, that is, who was first given an identity by God as a baby. Romans nine. 10 through 12 tells us that he was first given his identity, Jacob, as a younger, chosen heel grabber. This was God's design from the beginning. God gave him that identity, and we see the man who was renamed by God as an adult. That is, he was given a new identity as the victorious God's driver. In other words, in this passage, God transformed this man's name and his identity from Jacob to Israel and from cheater to prevailer. Before he was born, God determined his identity. And alone on the wrong side of the promised land, God did so again. Neither were Jacob's choice. Neither were his parents' choice. Neither were his brother's choice. He did not initiate either, and neither did he have a chance to refuse either. God alone defined who he was and who he would be. God alone determined his identity. Let me, let me bring this a little closer to home. And so it is for us today. Perhaps one of the biggest lies in the world now, at least in our culture, is that that's not true. It's a rejection of the idea that God alone determines our identity. In spite of our culture, our culture's current feudal war to say otherwise, we are not grace. You are not what you feel like you are. Now that can mean a whole bunch of things. Some of you feel like losers or failures or like you're unworthy of God's love and forgiveness or that he never would. For you. Some of you feel all kinds of things. There are other ways our culture's trying to define themselves by how they feel as well. But in spite of our culture's current feudal war to say otherwise, we are not who we feel like we are. We are not who we wish we were. 
We are not our experiences. We are not what others have told us we are or want us to be. Grace, don't miss this. We are not defined by what we do or don't do. We are not defined by what we would like to do or like to do. We are not defined by our successes or our failures. In short, you got to hear this. Neither you nor anyone else on this world, on this planet, ever has or ever will have a say in who we are in the core of our being, of how we are defined. God alone created us, and so God alone defines us and declares us to be what we are. We are who, and only who, and everything who God says we are. This has always been a struggle to accept for the people of God, but perhaps never more than today. The whole world, it seems, is clamoring with a different message, but we hold fast to the word of God. Do you want to know who you are? I'll tell you this morning. Regardless of how you feel or what you think or what others might say or have said, in simplest terms, you are a man or woman, Genesis 1.27 says, created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26 says, and either an enemy, Romans 5.10, or a beloved child, 1 John 1.31 of God. That's it. That's who you are. Nothing you do can change those things. There is more to be said on each of them, or about each of them. The Bible goes well beyond just those things, and or just stating those things. It explains them. But Grace, you are a man or woman created in God's image and either an enemy or a beloved child of God. They are essential ingredients, the essential ingredients of your nature, your identity, who you are. They, these things are at the core of any true anthropology. They are the start, to start anywhere else is to chase the wind. And so again, it's hard not to wonder how much pain and suffering and struggle and difficulty there is in the world right now, including in the church, that is the direct result of mankind trying to add to, take away from, or deny these things which are at the core of our personhood. How much suffering is the direct result of modern-day rejections of the simple fact that God made us male and female? How much suffering is the direct result of forgetting that all people, all people, including ourselves, are divine image bearers? How much anger and hatred is there in the world that is solely the result of forgetting that, or never knowing perhaps, that all people are divine image bearers, that all people, regardless of skin color, color, financial status, homeland, intelligence, last name, particular sin struggle, that all people bear the image and likeness of God. And how much suffering is the direct result of failing to acknowledge God is God, sin is sin, and Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? I think it's safe to say that the answer is almost all of it. Most of our suffering is the product of humanity's Adam-originated identity crisis. Grace, once again, this passage helps us to see that we are who God says we are. There's so much rest. You're struggling with, (laughs) if your hope is in Christ and you're struggling with discouragement or feeling overwhelmed or feeling like a fake or like you don't belong or there is so much rest and freedom and forgiveness and hope and healing and love and accepting that the one who made you defines you, not you and not anyone else. 
Believe that today, Grace. And here's the second thing. God alone secures our victory. He alone determines our identity, and he alone secures our victory. Jacob prevailed against God in a certain sense, and he would prevail in a few minutes against his, or a few minutes, a few verses against his brother, even as the nation bearing his name, Israel. Why is Israel called Israel as a nation? This is why. Even as the nation that would bear his name, Israel, would def- would prevail over her enemies. How is that? Where would this victory come from? Not according to their own wisdom or power or cunning, but according to the sovereign grace of God alone. Often in her weakness, Israel would find victory, even as the people of God today only in our weakness find victory. You can't be saved if you don't know that you're weak. What's more, throughout her history as a nation, Israel, Jacob's children, would continually wrestle with God in a battle of wills and in a battle for the blessing of God, sometimes on their own terms and sometimes on God's. In every case, though, where there was victory, it belonged to God. And so it is today. Grace, you ever plant anything? Now's the time to do it. Do you know why your crops grow? Do you know why the atoms in your body hold together? Do you know why our bodies digest food in an energy-producing way? Do you know why the earth holds its orbit? The answer is only because God causes these things to be so. God alone assures every victory among his creation. And so it is for you and, and me today. We too know success, real success, only where God grants it. On an individual level, where do you find the overcoming of your besetting sin? Where do you find mending in your relationships? Where do you find any measure of financial stability? Where do you find physical healing when you're sick or injured? Where do you find good friendships? Where do you find effective evangelism? And where do you find joy and fellowship with God? Only where God gives these things to us. Grace, we need to learn to walk in the knowledge that in Christ, our victory is such that there is no, hear this, Imagine the situation you're afraid to walk into. Our victory in Christ is such that no situation, there is no situation in which you cannot prevail, and there is no situation where you might prevail on your own. You get that? Because that's awesome. I want to say that again. We must learn to walk in the knowledge that in Christ, if your hope is in Christ, Our victory is such that there is no situation in which you cannot prevail, and there is no situation in which you might prevail on your own. God alone assures every victory among his people. Finally, on the larger scale, our greatest victory, our victory over sin and death, over enmity with God, comes only because God provided it for us in Jesus. While we were still God's enemies, while we were still defeated in sin, Christ died to give us victory. In the battle with sin, we cannot win on our own, on our own strength or on our own works. In the battle with sin, we cannot win on our own, in our own strength or in our own works. God alone assures every victory over sin, and he does so by grace alone, through faith alone, in the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ alone. You with me, Grace? God alone determines our identity, and God alone has secured our victory. Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. In the process, God transformed him, and therein in an entire nation of his, the entire nation of Israel. 
In these things, again, we see that God alone determines who we are and whether we will win. Let us walk then in light of who we are in Jesus and in light of the eternal victory that is ours through him. Amen.